Listeners are warned that I've got a headache. Episode 6, Crime de la Crime. Geordie Grambeister, 17, had everything going for him. He was a straight-A student, he had served two semesters as class president and one as class secretary of defence, and he had been captain of the football team so long he'd been promoted to colonel. And he was popular too, with fellow students and teachers alike. Most of the girls at his school lost their hearts over him, and a couple of teachers lost their mess over him. One of them also lost their job over him. But everyone lost their shit over him. In the high school yearbook, he was voted most likely to become famous three years in a row. But he never got a chance to become famous three years in a row. Instead, he became infamous. infamous, Which, ironically, did lead to him becoming famous. Famous but for all the wrong reasons apart from one, murder. Because he didn't do a murder. You see, Geordie Grambeister had an Achilles heel, or rather, an Odysseus nose. He was probably the last person you'd ever expect to get hooked on drugs, so you'll never guess what it was he got hooked on. Drugs. Yes, drugs. Drugs. The Grambeisters were a well-to-do but God-fearing family. In fact, they feared God so much they never went to church in case they bumped into him. Geordie's father, Roscoe, had gone into toilets when he was a young man and made a lot of money. He ended up running his own baths, but Geordie's mother, Cheryl, was now the main breadwinner of the family because she entered a lot of bread competitions. In 1992, the Grambeisters were living in a large house in Bethesda, Maryland, where Geordie attended the Nancy Reagan High School, formerly the Nancy Spungen High School. Geordie had a sister, Heather, who was three years younger than him, but their parents lavished all their attention on Geordie because he was better. To anyone standing on the outside looking in, it looked like the Grambeisters had a pretty enviable lifestyle, especially if it was raining. But the family had a secret. A secret so shocking that I can't even tell you what it is until the last two minutes of this podcast as it'll make a great ending. And to be honest, the rest of the story's fairly dull, so I need to leave something in reserve. Anyway, it all started out innocently enough on a family trip to a crack den. It was a sweltering day towards the end of the summer vacation and tensions were running high in the Grambeister household. Roscoe had generalised anxiety disorder, 
Cheryl had thumbache, Geordie had sprained his bike, and they were all suffering from a touch of cabin fever, which they'd caught off an infected cabin. It later transpired Heather was also struggling with acute depression, body dysmorphia, and borderline anorexia, although no one noticed or cared at the time, or indeed at any time. To try and cheer everyone up, Roscoe suggested a family trip to a local beauty spot, but the only local beauty spot he knew of was on the face of his cognitive behavioural therapist, so they all piled into the back of the family Ford Bronco. After a couple of minutes, Roscoe got out of the back and got into the front and, and they set off. However, when they got to the cognitive behavioural therapy store, Roscoe suddenly remembered his cognitive behavioural therapist was on holiday, so they couldn't even look at her beauty spot through the window. Instead, he suggested they go back home and take a dip in their swimming pool, but Cheryl, whose thumbache had now spread to her other thumb, went right off the deep end and didn't much care for the shallow end either. Luckily, before things got too heated, Geordie pointed out that the shop next door to the CBT store was called Drugs and Things, and suggested they might go in and get some medication for their various ailments. Cheryl jumped at the chance, but landed awkwardly and now got thumbache in her ankle, so she and Roscoe sent their kids into the shop while they stayed in the car and listened to a blank tape in order to try and calm down. The next part of the story makes difficult reading, as it's full of long words, so I'm going to get my computer to read out those bits. You ready, computer? Yeah. I mean, I could fucking say yeah, that's easy. Anyway, when Geordie and, uh, what's her name, Heather, walked into drugs and things, they realised it was no ordinary drugstore. Because this drugstore sold drugs. Proper drugs, I mean. Big drugs, dangerous drugs. Drugs that you see in films. Films about drugs. Drugs like lysergic acid diethylamide, otherwise known as LSD, and diacetylmorphine, otherwise known as heroin, as well as methylene dioxymethamphetamine, otherwise known as MDMA, ecstasy, or molly. Yep. They also sold poplars, doobries, foxes, gronks, horicons, yellow chocolate, German candles, Anti-beans, underwhelmers, look-o-looks, evening cheese, Mary Stipes, unicorn flakes, super snot, muswell hells, almighty chod, funky gibbets, slowboat to Cheltenham, gowned, old ma bastard, wogenberries, pink Lego, creme eggs, distools, pages from Cfax, Humphrey balls, Dylan frames. Copy cunts, Serva Lannister, Sweet Bippy, Come Down Mrs. Noah, Lady Dancington, Agadu of Inwit, and Belm. Weatherknob, Famous Gerald, Merry Christmas VD, The Ascent of Man Dining Experience, Spawn, Psychedelic Motets, Messy Poo, Little Dorrits, 8118055, Papit Poo Pony, Noddy, Stinkhole, Hecklephone Warehouse, Boggle, Shakespeare's Scissors, Hounslow Baskin Robbins, Twit Juice, Grievous Bodily Qualms, Squacko Heroin, Triumph TR Tombs, 
Magic Microfiche, The Story of Omo, J.R.R. Ewing, Chop, Chip, Chiss, Ray Windscale, Fiddlesticks, Handy Himmlers, and Wet Slippers. Chalk Pop, Big Fig, Baby Anus, Eleven Pencils, Zeke Heil Sputnik, Cake Nice, The Vanishing Pointer Sisters, Collateral Dommage, Lick Bait, Sexy Niece, Vitamin Ah, Snooky Looper, The Crazy World of Chronic Arthritis, Beppo, Waffly Versailles, Arnold Tiddly, Chipping Mordor, Turtles Cooked in Paraffin, The Mexican Version of Tomorrow's World, Malt Facts, Suicider, Clunk Clink, Sir Granville Bantock, Rubbage, Salty Stilgo, Tape His Tongue, Imperial Pleather. Molly. I said that one. Well, anyway, the, the type of drugs they sold is completely irrelevant. The point is, they sold loads of them, plus a few birthday cards and a decent selection of stationery. It was a drug den. With the birthday cards and stationery den attached. Geordie and... What's his sister called again? Molly. Oh, I don't think that's it. Anyway, they'd never seen the like, or Scarface, so this was a massive eye-opener for them, especially the cocaine they later discovered. There were two men in the drug den. The one in front was sat down counting a huge pile of money, so Geordie asked the man behind the counter for something to help with generalised anxiety disorder. This man, who was actually a member of the drug house of drug lords, took one look at Geordie and realised all his Christmases had come home to roost. You see, although Geordie was big enough to look after himself, he wasn't ugly enough, and as a result he made easy prey for the drugman. The drug lord offered Geordie a free sample of Bugs Bunyip, an opium derivative, which he said helped with generalised anxiety disorder. Geordie said thanks, but it was for his dad, not him, because he didn't have generalised anxiety disorder. The drug baron then produced a machete and said, quote, what about now? At this point, Geordie suddenly noticed he did have a spot of generalised anxiety disorder, so he thanked the drug Viscount and tucked into the bug's bunyip. Little did he know he was entering a world of pain. Although, to be fair, on the way in, there's quite a big lobby of feeling amazing. Meanwhile, back at the family Bronco, when Geordie didn't appear after ten minutes, his parents began to grow suspicious. When he didn't reappear after 20 minutes, they began to grow horny. But when he still hadn't returned after a full hour, they began to grow tomatoes. However, Cheryl, distracted over the whereabouts of her son, accidentally overwatered them and the first seedlings were disappointingly straggly. But luckily at this point, Geordie finally emerged from drugs and things. As he crawled towards the car on all fours, drooling and wailing, his parents began to suspect something might be up with Geordie. He was usually such a sensible boy, but now he was almost insensible. Insensible? Insensible, yeah, I know. When they asked him what had happened, he wasn't even capable of forming coherent sentences. In fact, you could say he was incapable and incoherent. Incapable and incoherent. Incapable and incoherent, yeah, I know. Molly. Shut up.
Geordie's mother then asked him if he'd managed to get anything for her thumbache, but all he had to show for himself was a new biro and eleven pencils. She was disappointed and bewildered, but also quite bored and anxious to get home, and as Roscoe was clinically anxious to get home, they went home, deciding to try and forget about what had happened, even though Geordie was screaming and projectile vomiting for the entire return journey, and his heart stopped at least twice. Once they got back home, Roscoe and Cheryl had to help Geordie out of the car, as he was now comatose and had soiled himself. Still, they didn't want to coddle the boy, so instead of calling a doctor, they sent Geordie and his new stationery straight to bed, using registered mail to make sure he got there safely. They reasoned that a good night's sleep would sort him out, him and his eleven pencils. Neither of them knew that eleven pencils was actually a slang term for ketamine, but to be fair to them, Geordie had also bought eleven actual pencils, so they had no real reason to suspect him, apart from the fact that he was clearly off his face on drugs. The next morning, Geordie was unusually quiet, until he woke up and started screaming again. This made for a rather tense breakfast, and his mother started to get indigestion in her ears. So once she'd cleared the plates away, she asked Geordie if he'd maybe like to go back to drugs and things and buy her some Gaviscon. He immediately stopped screaming and agreed to her request with alacrity, setting off straight away. However, this time he didn't reappear until 14 hours later, when his nude, semi-conscious body was pushed out of a white Subaru onto their doorstep. Again, his parents put him straight to bed, although this time, when they all got up the next morning, it transpired Geordie had forgotten to get the Gaviscon after all. So his mother sent him back again to drugs and things, and the entire process repeated itself in more or less the same way. Before long, this became a daily routine. From this point on, Geordie was a different boy. Except he wasn't. He was the same boy, he just seemed different, so I probably should have said that instead. By the time school started up again, he was a shadow of his former self. His grades suffered, he was listless and unmotivated, and his popularity took a hit too. He was no longer a heartthrob to the girls, and no teachers masturbated over him at all anymore. The truth was, he was becoming a really tough wank. He just shuffled around all day with a glazed expression on his face, not paying any attention to where he was going until he walked face first into a plate glass window and ended up with a double glazed expression. Bad vomitish. Thank you. And it wasn't just at school that his gradual deterioration became manifest. During spring break, he had passed his driving test first time, but he failed all subsequent attempts. He got fired from his paper round for suspected corporate fraud, and at morning prayers his parents noticed that all he ever seemed to say was, Dear Lord, please give me some more drugs. Roscoe and Cheryl Grambyster didn't know what to do. Geordie was their only child, and he seemed to be gradually slipping away from them. So they decided to do nothing and leave it up to God's will. Unfortunately, God's will seemed to be to give Geordie more and more drugs, maybe because he kept praying for them. Bad vomitish. No, not there. Sorry. It's okay. Geordie's... Molly. Shush. Geordie's increasingly over-drug use soon brought him into conflict with the school principal, 
which was We Don't Take Drugs, or at least it had been since 1968, when the word drugs had been substituted for the word coloureds. He was summoned to see Ms Clawfeather, the head teacher, and given a stern talking to about the evils of drugs. Sadly, he took a bong in with him and began smoking it halfway through her lecture, so he missed a lot of the good bits, although he did give her a vigorous round of applause at the end. But it wasn't enough, and he was expelled on the spot. When he got home, after a celebratory five-day bender, his parents sat him down and gave him an ultimatum. Either he agreed to give up drugs or he had to share them round so that everyone could see what the fuss was about. Geordie was so addicted by this stage, there was no chance he was going to share his fix with anyone. So to fire his parents, he agreed to go and get some help. They were overjoyed at this news, as he'd become really annoying. And so at the end of Roscoe's next CBT appointment, he asked his cognitive behavioural therapist if she could recommend a good rehab centre for his son. Unfortunately, as she was giving Roscoe the names of the most reputable clinics in the area, he was staring fixedly at her beauty spot and didn't really listen to what she was saying, so when he got home he just picked one at random. The one he chose was called Rehab and Stuff, and was a three and a half hour drive away which meant they wouldn't be able to visit Geordie very often. It sounded ideal, so Roscoe dropped Geordie off there the very next day. At first, the reports the Grambeisters got back from rehab and stuff were encouraging. Geordie was doing well. He had stopped screaming at mealtimes and had given up trying to strangle the staff, except for one orderly that everyone hated anyway. He was responding well to therapy and had begun to make friends among the other patients. In fact, he had quickly become the most popular person in there. He started to organise quiz nights, a football tournament and even regular excursions to a local beauty spot the Grambeisters began to dare to hope their son was returning back to his normal self. But it wasn't to be. After a couple of months, the reports, which had initially been frequent, started to become infrequent. 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 And not only that, they became increasingly... Increasingly. Increasingly difficult to understand. When they hadn't received any written communication from rehab and stuff for five weeks except for a crayon drawing of a devil with bollocks for eyes, Roscoe and Cheryl resolved to take matters into their own hands and set off in the Bronco to find out what was going on. When they arrived at rehab and stuff, they couldn't believe what they found. The place was literally full of drugs. In fact... Did that really deserve a sting? Dramatic sting? I mean, that was... Pretty obvious it was going to be full of drugs, isn't it? I don't know what I actually expected to find there. So, yeah, the place was full of drugs. Everyone was stoned, even the staff. Geordie had evidently managed to smuggle vast quantities of narcotics into the clinic, so he must have had a contact on the outside. There was no question about it. But who? So, there was one question about it. However, his parents weren't quite interested enough to find out who it was. They just wanted to get Geordie off drugs by any means necessary. And as the carrot approach hadn't worked, it was time for the stick. 
They threw Geordie into the Bronco, drove him home and locked him in his bedroom with only a bowl of stick and coriander soup. At first he complained bitterly, screaming through the door how much they hated him and how much he hated them and how he wanted them to die and how they wanted him to die and how if they'd used fresh coriander instead of dried coriander the soup might have been more flavoursome. But eventually his cries died down and he seemed to fall asleep. He remained peaceful for the next couple of days and his parents hoped he might be finally on the mend. But when they unlocked his door to check up on him, they discovered he was somehow doped up to his eyeballs again. They reasoned he must have smuggled some drugs in, maybe up his bum. So they did a deep clean of his entire room and bum. Roscoe put a new lock on his door and his bum, and Cheryl locked him and his bum up in his bedroom again. Surely it had to work this time. And yet, when they next checked up on him 48 hours later, they discovered that he was even more stoned this time doped not just up to his eyeballs, but way above his eyebrows. Not only that, but on his bedside table there was clear evidence of fresh drugs that had definitely not been there when they locked him in. As far as they were concerned, there was only one explanation. God had answered Geordie's prayers and was supplying him with Class A drugs. parents didn't know what to do. They prayed with all their might to God not to keep providing their beloved son with illegal narcotics, but still, every morning there was evidence of a fresh drug delivery. Then, one night, Cheryl, whose knees were suffering from insomnia due to her incessant praying, had gone to the kitchen to get a slice of white bread. On her way back, she noticed Geordie's bedroom door was wide open. At first she didn't want to admit she'd been outwitted, but she swallowed her mother's pride and went in. There she saw Geordie, wide awake and having a whispered conversation with a shadowy figure. She was terrified. After all this time, was she about to come face to face with God? No, obviously not. And then it hit her. This must be the mysterious drug kingpin. Then the figure spoke, and Cheryl realised it was actually a queen pin. But when she turned on the light and saw the figure's face, she realised it was more like a princess pin. Oh, do we have to have that fucking sting all the fucking time? My head is fucking killing me. No, that's not a dramatic fucking... Anyway, yes, it turned out Geordie's supplier was a 14-year-old girl called Heather or something who said she had a key because she was his sister. I mean, he didn't have a sister, though. I guess sister must be drug lord slang for dealer or something. Anyway, when she turned round and saw Cheryl, this strange drug girl broke down in tears for some reason blaming the grandbisters for leaving her alone in drugs and things so that in order to survive she'd been forced to get involved in the drug trade and had gradually worked her way up to the top of the drug tree using Geordie as a patsy. 
I mean, it was clearly a pack of lies, and Cheryl didn't fall for it. She was just so relieved that it wasn't God who'd been supplying the drugs, that her brain had a massive heart attack and she died on the spot. Geordie was gobsmacked, probably because he had a gob full of smack. But even in his drug-addled state, he realised how incriminating this would all look in the cold light of day to a policeman or a stuntman or batman. There was nothing for it. He didn't think twice, and to be honest, not even once. He just turned round and left the house where he'd grown up and shot up and thrown up, never to return again. Oh, and presumably that, that dealer went with him. What's her name again? Molly. Molly, that's it. So when Roscoe Grambeister woke up the next morning to a strangely silent household, he found his wife dead and his son gone forever. You can only imagine how he must have felt, because I can't be bothered to describe it. Probably quite sad anyway. In fact, yeah, he must have been, because from this point on, his life quickly began to unravel. He lost his job, his faith and his shit. His drinking spiralised out of control, and he ended up only six months later dying in a tragic car wash. The house then lay empty for a few weeks, until a neighbour called the police and reported a strange smell coming from the property. It actually turned out the smell was just the neighbour's daughter setting fire to her hair, but as the police were there now, they broke into the Grambeister's house anyway for a laugh. But when they went into Geordie's room, they couldn't believe what they found in there. In total, they seized two kilos of heroin, three kilos of cocaine, 500 grams of crystal meth, 250 grams of baking powder, 100 grams of butter, and salt and pepper to taste. They then sautéed it in a large pan over a medium heat until crispy, then topped it with green vegetables. It served four to six policemen and they went to prison for 40 to 45 minutes. But they weren't the only ones affected by the discovery. Now that the house itself was empty of drugs, it began to suffer severe withdrawal symptoms. Tremors weakened the foundations. The walls grew damp. The paint began to peel off and the windows fell in. After only five weeks, the whole structure was deemed to have become unsafe and had to be demolished. The last victim of Geordie's drug-fueled crime wave. Oh, and that stupid girl drug dealer. Uh, I seem to remember something about her becoming the youngest and most ruthless drug lord of all time or something. Did she maybe die at the age of was it 19 in a hail of bullets? Have I got that right? I think they may have made a Netflix drama or two about her. Whatever, I don't know, it doesn't matter. But what of Geordie himself? No one really knows, but unconfirmed reports relate that he now has no money, no job, no friends, and just sits around all day in a filthy bedsit making podcasts that no one listens to. Pathetic. And how do I know so much about him? Because Geordie Grambeister was me... Oh no, no, sorry, it wasn't me. Sorry, no, I was looking at the wrong drawing. Sorry, no, I googled him, that's how I know about him, yeah. But possibly the saddest part of this whole story is that Geordie never found out the great Grambeister family secret, which was... Drugs are great. Oh, 
fuck's sake, I was going to say it. I was just leaving a pause for dramatic effect. No, it's too late now. Uh, anyway, I reckon Geordie probably didn't need anyone to tell him jokes were great. Oh, no. Flaming... Molly. No, Flaming Nora. I've run out of paracetamol. 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 Seat. Sit. Seat. Sit. Seat. Sit. Seat. Sit. Seat. Sit. It's seat. Sit. Oh. <coughs> oh, Christ. Oh. Oh, sorry, I feel a bit weird. How many pills have you taken? Only 10 or 11 packets. That's too many. No, there are only a couple of pills in each packet. In each packet. Yeah, I know, I know, each packet. You don't need to interpret Interpret everything I say. Shut up, look. I'm fine, I'm not intoxicated. Intoxicated. <laughs> look, computer, if you don't shut up, I'm going to throw you in the... In the bin. Hold, hold on a second. There's something weird going on here. Let me try something. While I was in the toilet, I instantly got indigestion. Oh, man. I think I might be from New Zealand. No, you're slurring your words because you've overdosed on paracetamol. 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 Seat. Set. Seat. Set. Seat. Set. 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 Glenn. 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 Oh dear. Oh well. And that is the end of this episode. Good nighter. See you same time place, different crime face. Bad Umtish.